Well, thanks, Stars. It's uh, great to have you reading the Bible with us uh, all the way from Denmark. What a, what a wonderful thing technology is. Uh, and it's so good to be able to gather together again tonight to look at God's Word together. We're in Mark's Gospel, as you know. Uh, we've been working through it for a, uh, quite a while now, and we're coming towards the kind of uh, key parts of what Mark has been trying to tell us. And so we're up to chapter 14. Hopefully you've got your Bibles open there in front of you. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us hear him speak to us in his word tonight. Let's do that. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word, which uh, reveals yourself to us, that we might know you, know uh, all that you have done for us, and know your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he has done to bring us back into relationship with you. Help us tonight to uh, just understand the depth of that a little bit better tonight and its implications for our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you may remember uh, Amir. He was a, an Iranian asylum seeker. I'm not going to give you his second name, but he was an Iranian asylum seeker that our immigration department just a few years ago had decided to send back to Iran. Uh, you might know him because he was all over the papers, but Amir escaped to our country to seek asylum, hoping to find people who would help and protect him. During his stay in our detention centre, uh, Christian people like Hendry from our congregation down in Botany visited and shared the gospel with Amir, and he became a Christian. And he was therefore in even graver danger if he was sent back, because the death penalty applies to those who, uh, in Iran, to those who convert from Islam. And yet our immigration department uh, and courts had denied his visa. And so when he was being interviewed, he said to one of the papers, he said, I feel dead inside. It doesn't feel like they've made a decision to deport me. It feels like the clock has started ticking down to my execution. And the papers were reporting his case because of the obvious mistake that had been made. Amir saw himself on the doorstep of death. And in chapter 14 of Mark's gospel, so is Jesus. Uh, this is the climax of Mark's gospel, the good news about Jesus. Uh, these are the events that the whole story has been leading towards and which Jesus has been predicting with increasing urgency since chapter 8. Uh, Jesus himself recognises in, in verse 41 of chapter 14 that the hour of his betrayal and death has come. But we don't have to wait until we arrive at verse 41 to realise that his death is close because the first 11 verses here of chapter 14 indicate that Jesus is right at the doorstep of death. And Mark records three brief episodes to show just how close he was to being killed. Uh, each episode actually shows a person or a, a group of people and their attitudes towards Jesus. And the first episode is a familiar group, uh, the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. Uh, the second is a woman. And then the third is one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot. The first episode actually shows that the chief priests and the scribes are determined to get Jesus. Uh, have a look at verse 1 of chapter 14 there. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. 
We've seen the Jewish religious leaders grow increasingly hostile to Jesus. Uh, Then a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that we saw them, uh, they were trying to trap him while he was in the temple. Uh, And on each of those occasions, you might remember also that the tables were turned and that they were the ones in the end who were humiliated. But now they're determined to, to kill him is absolute. It's just a matter of how and when. Well, the second episode uh, in stark contrast to the first is a lavish expression of love for Jesus. Uh, In verse 3 of Mark chapter 14, Mark tells us that a woman, uh, which John's gospel actually tells us is Mary, Martha's sister, she breaks open a flask of scented oil, pure nard, uh, worth a year's wages, and she pours it over Jesus' head. It was an extravagant expression of her love and devotion for Jesus. And Jesus himself in verse 6, notice, describes it as a beautiful thing that she has done to him. And yet in verse 8, we see the significance of her extravagance. See what it says? She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. See, Jesus knows that he's on the doorstep of death. But there's just one more episode involving one of Jesus' disciples here in these first 11 verses, uh, and that is Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas was the treasurer, we know that. Uh, He was the keeper of the money bag of the disciples. Uh, And when Mary poured uh, her ointment over Jesus, some who were there, probably led by Judas as the finance spokesman, if you like, they weren't happy about it. What a waste, they said, in their self-righteousness. You could have sold it and you could have given it to the poor. But in the end, we realise that their comments are both sick and insincere. In fact, John adds in his gospel that Judas didn't say it because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He used to help himself to what was in the money bag. And so what does Judas do? Well, the way Mark paints it is that Judas goes straight out with a plan to recoup some of the losses. Uh, Have a look at verse 10. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And Mark deliberately contrasts Mary with Judas. Her uncalculating generosity and devotion and his coldly calculated bargain. And Jesus doesn't tell us to be aware, to beware of the sin of covetousness for no reason. There are people every day in their slavish hunt for material prosperity who descend into deep depravity. Magistrates pervert justice for bribes. Politicians give contracts to the highest bidders. Business people enter into shady deals that ruin other people. Shopkeepers use dishonest scales. Joe Average manipulates his tax return to claim what he isn't owed. Bigger kids stand over smaller kids in the school playground to take their school money. Judas was no different to many others, in one sense. And Jesus had said that it's impossible to serve both God and money. And Judas chose money, as many others have done. And as a result, Jesus here is very clearly on the doorstep of death, isn't he? Now, our familiarity with the story of Jesus' death can actually blind us to what a shocking story it actually is. Uh, It's it's a heart-wrenching story. 
as those who perhaps saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, would be able to tell you. And we can't help wondering why they would do this to Jesus. Now, the rest of this chapter actually takes us through all of the events on the day before Jesus is crucified. I've called it a diary of death uh, at point three on the outline if you're using it. What was Jesus' last day like? Well, can I say it was a day of betrayal, a day of sorrow, desertion, denial, distress. And yet, strangely enough, it also was a day that appears to fit into the scope of God's will. It happened as God intended it would and as Jesus knew it must. But that makes it no less tragic or gruesome and it makes those responsible no less culpable for their actions. Now you may have heard of Maundy Thursday, uh, one of the dates in the calendar. Maundy Thursday will always be remembered as the night on which Jesus was betrayed. And Judas will always be remembered as the one who betrayed him. Uh, The central feature of this chapter is Jesus' betrayal at the hands of his friend and disciple, Judas. Now, cast your eyes over this passage with me and have a look. I'm going to start down there at verse 18, and then I'm going to skip over to verse 41. But let's just start at verse 18. Let's see what it says. And as they were reclining at table, that is his disciples, and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And then from the end of verse 41, if you can skip over to there, we read, The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd with, and, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. You know, Mark shows how Judas carries out his plans of betrayal and treachery here. And what makes it so horrible is that Judas was a close and trusted friend and colleague of Jesus. You know, one moment they're reclining at a table together, eating a meal that unites them. And John tells us that actually Jesus dips a piece of bread in the dish and offers it to Judas. And with a twist of the knife, Judas chooses to betray his master with a kiss and using a sign of friendship to destroy it. And at that point, his own condemnation was sealed. And have a look at Jesus' own judgment upon his betrayer in verse 21. He says, Therefore the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. See, not only did Judas sign Jesus' death warrant, he also signed his own. His own condemnation was inescapable. But he had also set in train a horrible set of events and sufferings that would in the end culminate in Jesus' barbaric flogging, his mocking, his crucifixion. And on a day that some might think we strangely call Good Friday. Well, Mark tells us that the disciples were sorrowful 
when Jesus told them that one of their own number would betray him. And they were deeply sad and that it could possibly be one of them. And nervously they questioned whether or not it could be them. However, while the rest won't betray Jesus, they will desert him. They might even deny him, denying that they know him. And have a look at what Jesus says when the meal is over from verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, the asylum seeker, Amir, must have some kind of understanding of what it's like, can I say, to be deserted. Uh, those who should have been protecting him had deserted him. Uh, Amir had shown himself to be a friend of Australia's. Uh, he had given information to Australian authorities in good faith that enabled them to catch people smugglers who were ripping people off and endangering lives. While in detention, he not only uh, helped many of the detainees, but uh, he became a friend to many of the guards and management who relied on him to defuse hostile situations. But in his own time of need, those who should have supported him deserted him. See, Jesus knows and he foretells to his disciples that when that kiss of death comes, every last one of them, his friends, his closest followers, would desert him. And he was right, that's exactly what happened. Uh, when the soldiers seized Jesus, uh, if you cast your eyes down to verse 50 there, look at the end of verse 50, they all left him and fled. And on top of that, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, the one who said to Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. When given the chance to stand up for him, he's going to shrink in fear and deny him not once, but three times. Jesus' last day was marked by betrayal, desertion, denial, and by those who are closest to him. And so was it this kind of this inner emotional turmoil, was the, the mental anguish of being despised and rejected even by his own people, was it that that led to the distress that we read about in the following verses, the distress that Jesus experienced? Or, or was it something more? Have a look at uh, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Friends, Jesus' distress is acute. And the words used by Mark and even Jesus himself actually indicate that he was feeling an, an acute emotional pain 
that one of the accounts said caused him to sweat drops of blood. He looked with terror at what he was about to face. Whatever it is that he's referring to, he calls it this cup. Now, I know we've seen this cup uh, come up before earlier in Mark, but it's hardly likely, isn't it, that this cup refers to his mental anguish from the betrayal and denial and desertion of his friends. Nor is it likely that this cup that he asks his father to remove from him is his physical suffering, the torture and scourging of crucifixion. As dreadful, even terrifying as these things are, it's unlikely that these are the things that cause Jesus to be sorrowful even to death. And particularly given his incredible moral and physical courage right throughout his public ministry. It's impossible to imagine that he was now afraid of pain and insult and death. In fact, the stories of the martyrs are exactly the opposite. Ignatius, uh, who was the bishop of Antioch in Syria at the beginning of the second century, uh, and he was a prisoner and on his way to Rome, and he begged the church not to try and secure his release so that, so that they would not deprive him of this honour. Before he was martyred by being thrown to the lions, he wrote these words. Listen to what he wrote. He said, Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, if only I might gain Christ Jesus. You know, many years and Christian martyrs later, the 17th century Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, wrote these words. He said, Oh, the joy that the martyrs of Christ have felt in the midst of the scorched fl- scorching flames. Although made of flesh and blood like us, their souls could rejoice even while their bodies were burning. If you compare the martyrs, those who died for their faith, with Christ here in the Garden of Gethsemane, it doesn't make sense that Jesus' anguished plea that his father take this cup from him is about either the emotional distress or the pain, insult and death that he was about to face. I mean, the, mar- the martyrs are joyful. Jesus is sorrowful. They were eager. He was reluctant. How could they have gained their inspiration from him if he had hesitated here? It's also worth remembering how clear-sighted Jesus has been up until now about the necessity of his suffering and death and his determination, remember, to fulfill what he clearly saw as his destiny. And so what is the cup that he wishes his father to take from him? Well, the cup metaphor was a a well-used one in the Old Testament. The Lord's cup was a symbol of his wrath, his anger. The great Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah, spoke of the cup of God's wrath in relation to Judah. Uh, Because of her wickedness, uh, that is Judah's wickedness, Ezekiel prophesied that she would drink the cup of God's wrath and drain it dry in Ezekiel 23. And then after her punishment, Isaiah spoke about Judah as having drunk from the cup of of, of of the Lord's wrath in Isaiah chapter 51. And then speaking of the wicked, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, it says, They will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
the cup that Jesus is so anguished about, that his sinless soul recoils from, is the cup of God's wrath given to the wicked. See, Jesus stands in our place to bear the judgment for our sin. He drinks the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He hangs back in horror at the separation from his father that the judgment on sin would involve. That is the cup that causes Jesus to be sorrowful even unto death. And yet at the end of the prayer, each time he prayed uh, were the words, yet not what I will, but what you will. The loving purpose of God was to save sinners. But this was only possible through the sin-bearing death of the Saviour. And this, says Jesus in John 12, is the reason I came to this hour. See, Jesus' will was to do the will of his heavenly Father. And notice that when Judas arrives uh, with the soldiers to arrest Jesus, he's calm and resolute in his willingness to suffer the wrath of his Father for us. He was willing to put his life on the line for you and me. You know, I don't know if you've ever put your life on the line for anyone. Uh, I have, of course. You'd probably imagine that, I imagine. But, uh, you know, on one occasion, I remember when I was about 12 years old, I think that's roughly the age, my brother was a couple of years older than me, we were playing on the swings at, uh, at our caravan park where we were on holidays. And uh, this bigger boy came along and he wanted to kick us off and he started picking a fight with my older brother. Well, you don't do that to my older brother. And so I uh, made a beeline for this guy. I was going to take him out. I mean, he was bigger than my brother. And my brother was bigger than me. Uh, and so I ran at him. But the next thing I knew, I was kind of flying through the air and landing on the ground some metres away. Um, and I thought, oh, my brother's going to get him now. And as I looked up, here's my brother running back to our caravan. But I at least thought it was a nice thing that I was prepared to do that for my brother to suffer on his behalf. But can I say, um, that's a complete joke when we look at what Christ has done for us because what Christ was willing to suffer for us is beyond our understanding. Even a heart-wrenching movie like The Passion of the Christ doesn't do justice to the suffering that Jesus was willing to undergo for us. But while we may not be able to fully grasp what he went through, we must understand why he did it. We must come to grips with what his death means. Jesus tells us uh, back in verses 22 through to 25. Now the setting in which Jesus, oh, sorry, Judas's betrayal took place was on the first day of the Jewish festival of unleavened bread, we're told, the day when the Passover feast would be eaten. It was a time of great significance for the nation of Israel. We read about it back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, the Passover feast was a commemoration of God saving his people who had been enslaved in Egypt. God would send a final plague upon the Egyptians for their wicked treatment of God's people and their refusal to let him go or let them go. And, and this final plague involved God sending the destroying angel over all of Egypt and the firstborn son of every family being killed. But the Israelite families would escape this judgment by killing a lamb, spreading its blood on the door frames of their homes and eating it with their families. 
the lamb was sacrificed as a substitute for the Israelite firstborn male. And so at this celebra- the celebration of this defining Israelite feast, Jesus stands and in an acted parable, he breaks the bread and he says to them that it is his body that is soon to be broken for them. And then he takes the cup and he tells them to drink it because it is a symbol of the blood that he will soon shed for them. See, Jesus is the Passover lamb that is soon to be sacrificed. His body broken, his blood poured out for many. Now, his reference here to his his being the blood of the new covenant, uh, to the, of, the, of the covenant, points to his sacrifice being for the forgiveness of sins, which was central, if you like, to the establishing of the new covenant. His death would bring his people into a new relationship with God. And so Jesus is actually showing his disciples and showing us here that his death is central. First, he suffers and dies as a substitute for us. He is our Passover lamb. And then second, his body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins as part of the new covenant, the new relationship he was establishing between us and God. See, Jesus was on the doorstep of death for us. And on the day before Jesus died, he was betrayed by Judas, he was deserted by his disciples, he's seized by the Jews. And next week we'll see that he goes to his death on the cross for us too. I heard about a pastor in America a few years back who was renowned for his ability uh, to illustrate points in his sermons incredibly well. Uh, Tragically, his wife died, leaving him with a, a young daughter who was about eight years of age. He said that he'd always found it easy to illustrate almost anything. And people had regularly told him how well his illustrations had helped them grasp different concepts but he said but when his wife died he was at a loss to explain it to his young daughter Uh, for weeks he had struggles to answer his daughter's questions in a a way that she could understand why did her mum have to die if Jesus already died in our place he wanted her to understand what death was about and, and what God had done about it and then one day a few weeks after his wife's death He was out with his daughter and as they were about to cross the road, a a huge truck kind of whooshed by and for a moment they were covered by the the truck's shadow. And he said at that moment God gave him a thought, uh, an answer to the question that he had been wanting to give his daughter. Uh, He said to her, darling, did you see that big truck that just went by? Yes, daddy. Did you see how its shadow went over us as it went past? Yes. He said to her, do you think that you'd rather be run over by that big truck or by the shadow of the truck? And by the shadow, of course, she said. And he went on to explain how when her mum died, it was like she had been run over by the shadow of that truck instead of the truck itself. And the point that he used that illustration to make was that the truck represented the wrath of God that as sinners we were destined to face. But because of Jesus' death, it's like Jesus himself runs in front of the truck, pushes us out of the way so that we are only hit by the shadow. And he himself takes the full force 
of the track of God's wrath. When he died, Jesus willingly threw himself in front of the truck so that all we need to experience of death is the shadow. That is, death is not so scary when the wrath of God is no longer upon us. Jesus has been crushed for our iniquities, for our sins. The sting of death has been dealt with. We might not fully appreciate the suffering that Jesus went through, but we must understand why. Listen to these words from that hymn. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. Friends, we're going to take a moment to pray together and uh, Kieran is going to be leading us together in prayer tonight.